Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, thanks for joining the show. Today I'm talking with Jessica Mehta, author of Savagery, a poetry collection reflecting what it means to be indigenous in today's increasingly hostile post-colonial America. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Jessica. Jessica Mehta is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, multi-award winning poet, and author of over one dozen books. Place, space, and personal ancestry inform much of her work. She's also the editor-in-chief of Crab Creek Review and owner of an award-winning small business. Metaphor is a writing services company that offers pro bono services to Native Americans and indigenous-serving nonprofits. Her novel, The Wrong Kind of Indian, won gold at the 2019 Ippies, the Independent Book Publisher Awards, and at the American Book Fest Best Book. Jessica also received numerous fellowships in recent years, including the Everett Helm Visiting Fellowship at the Lilly Library at Indiana University in Bloomington and the Eccles Center Visiting Fellowship at the British Library in London. Jessica is a popular speaker and panelist, featured recently at events such as the U.S. State Department's National Poetry Month event, Poets as Cultural Emissaries, a Conversation with Women Writers, as well as the Women's Transatlantic Prison Activism Since 1960 Symposium at Oxford University. Jessica has undertaken poetry residencies around the globe, including Hosking Houses Trust, with an appointment at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in England, Paris Lit Up in France, and at the Crazy Horse Memorial and Museum in South Dakota. Her work has been featured at galleries and in exhibitions around the world, including IA&A Hillier in Washington, D.C., the Emergency Gallery in Sweden, and the Institute of American Indian Arts in New Mexico. You can learn more about Jessica Mehta and her works by visiting her website, jessicamehta.com. Well, hi, Jessica. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about your collection, Savagery, winner of the Reader Views Literary Awards for the most uh, innovative book of poetry, and also the 2020 Book Excellence Awards. Can you tell us a little bit about this collection? Right. So this is by Airly Press. And I know a lot of people outside of the Pacific Northwest might not be familiar, but Airly Press is a collective. So basically, um, every poet slash editor comes on and serves a three-year term. So while your book is being published at the same time, you're working as the publisher for other collections. Mm-hmm. Um, Airly only works with Pacific Northwest writers. And if you're from Oregon or the Pacific Northwest, Airly is pretty well known and renowned. So I had been trying to join the collective for many years. And it was ultimately um, this collection that got me in. Normally when I write poetry collections, because I believe this was my, somewhere between my 10th and 13th book, I personally kind of keep track by what's been accepted by which publisher. So I'm not 100% certain where it falls in the ranking. But I write, you know, chronologically, and they kind of organically become a collection that makes sense. But this one was a little bit unique, because the original manuscript that Airly accepted 
is pretty different from the final version. Hmm. And that's because um, during this three-year term, uh, my mother passed away and I ended up doing quite a bit of writing as, you know, most poets would Mm -hmm. and wanted to incorporate some of those poems into it. So it did change and evolve and metamorphosize a little bit, but I do think that ultimately it ended up kind of making it a stronger collection. The bulk of this work is about self-identity as an Indigenous woman today in post-colonial America, and I think the death of a parent kind of moves you into the next phase of your life. So I think that was an important aspect of it, and I'm glad that it could kind of congeal its collection a little bit better than it did initially. Yeah, it's funny how our work evolves, huh? I know know our reviewer said that she felt like she felt your raw emotions come through the pages and, and, and also that each poem made her skin tingle. Um, and that's, to me, that's pretty powerful. So I, I was wondering, how long have you been writing poetry? And can you talk about a, a time where you learned the power of language through your poetry? Yeah, I have been writing poetry ever since I could write. My parents saved everything because I was raised as an only child. Mm. Um, my sister was 15 years older. So I have poems that I wrote when I was six. My undergraduate degree was in literature. Both masters are tied to writing, but I didn't start considering publishing until I was, I I think, 30. So I think a nice round number. Oh, wow. And there's no real reason for it. After so many years of writing, I had, you know, a huge stock of poems and that that was kind of a different process of putting together a potential manuscript to send out there. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing at all. Um, if I could do things over, my first two books were actually maybe two or three books in one. And it was actually the poet Marvin Bell who told me, um, you know, this could be a lot more than just one book, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a learning process. Uh-huh. And my, you know, my story of getting published, you know, I, I sent it out to various journals and magazines for about a year before I thought about a real book and no idea how to find a publisher. I kind of stumbled upon one. The first query I sent out was accepted. So that is not a normal story at all. And oh, wow. yeah. I got a little bit spoiled with that. And that first publisher, they published poetry pretty regularly, but they were more of an art publisher. So the books were absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And I went into, oh, this is, this is what a poetry, you know, this is nice, hardcover, <laughs> commissioned paintings. <and> that. <laughs> Sending out one query and, you know, a gorgeous book is not the norm, but it was a, it was a fantastic welcome to the publishing world. Yeah, what a nice experience. Now, you've taken uh, your poetry up a notch, integrating it with technology, which is, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about your Red Act exhibition? Sure. So outside of my creative work, I own a writing services company which specializes in search engine optimization or SEO. For people who don't know what that is, it's basically what we do to make sure some websites appear further up in Google search results or any search engine results. So um, dealing with technology is what I do on a daily basis Mm. anyway. But I think everyone kind of knows there's only certain people that would ever 
pick up a poetry book or go to a poetry reading and it's a relatively small circle, Mm -hmm. especially once we get into what kinds of poetry or indigenous poetry. But then I was doing a fellowship at Halcyon Arts Labs in Washington, D.C. from 2018 and 2019. And I was brought there to curate an anthology of poetry by incarcerated indigenous women. Mm. But at the same time, Halcyon also has an entrepreneurial arm. And we had a lot of kind of intersecting between the artists and the entrepreneurs. It just so happened that one of the entrepreneur co-founders were there and they're from Australia and own a virtual reality company. And they're always wanting to expand into playing with and exploring different areas. And, you know, no surprise, they had never played with poetry before. (laughs) So they approached me about um, starting a virtual reality for poetry experience. And then when I started working with them and researching, I found very limited research, you know, again, no surprise about how poetry and virtual reality work together. Mm -hmm. But I did find research out of Spain that showed um, embodiment in VR can permanently increase a person's compassion, empathy, and understanding. Really? Wow. That's what it's showing. And that research was actually based on men who have been convicted of domestic violence, the control group who didn't do anything with VR, and another group who embodied a woman being abused. And obviously, this is relatively new, but the research is showing that even months and years after that single experience, they exhibited more compassion and empathy for these women. Wow. So whether or not that can translate to poetry and a person experiencing indigenous women narratives and poetry, whether or not that will help encourage more compassion in them, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the quote unquote worst case scenario is more people will experience indigenous poetry because People might not necessarily go to a poetry reading if that's not their thing. But in my experience, everyone wants to try out virtual reality. So it's really easy to at least expose a wider audience to it. Yeah, I love that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's um, constantly evolving. You know, the technology is also always evolving. So the experience, which I called Red Act or Redact, however you want to say it, um, it has had pop-up experiences at Smithsonian institutions in D.C., um, University of Exeter, which is where I'm doing my research in England, and then also around the Portland area. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. Now, you mentioned earlier that there is a lot of self-reflection in your writing. What are some of the issues you have dealt with or, or deal with as a member of the indigenous population or just as a woman? Um. Well, unfortunately, there's a fair amount of overlap between as a woman or as an indigenous woman. Personally, I have, or people in my immediate family have faced a lot of the disparities that are common in indigenous populations. Um, I am the only person in my immediate family to never be incarcerated. There's all kinds of statistics to go along with that. Uh, Native women are incarcerated at a time six times higher than their white counterparts. 
Native Americans in general are incarcerated 38% higher than the general population. Mm. Alcoholism is rampant in my family, drug addiction. Um, My sister actually died of hepatitis C from heroin addiction. Um, My dad also died of hepatitis C, but his was from a dirty prison tattoo needle. And my mom died of an opioid overdose combined with alcoholism. So, um, I mean, it just, it's endless. Probably any statistic you could find would apply either to myself or my immediate family. Mm. Uh, but a lot of these details non-natives just aren't familiar with, um, kind of understandably so. It's not nearly as out there in the media as it is with some other populations. And there's also the factor that a lot of natives, if they're not on Indian land or on a reservation pass. Um, I know exactly what it's like to have the privilege of passing as white for quite a bit of my life. Mm. Um, what I'm often told, and this I know resonates with a lot of Native women, um, is you look something. And that's actually the name of one of my novels that just came out last month. And, but not, not enough for me to necessarily experience the kind of prejudice and racism that someone like my father experienced. So there are benefits to that that I'm very aware of, but also a feeling that you don't belong fully in, you know, either world. Yeah, right, right. Now, with all of that you have dealt with or encountered during your life, does your writing play a significant role in healing for you? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think I always at least subconsciously knew that because I write because I have to. Mm -hmm. There are times when I write at least one poem a day and I know immediately if it's what I consider good and will be published. Um, There are times that I go months without writing. And when I go months without writing, I know that's good for my holistic health, but obviously not so good for my writing career. Right. And I've spoken to quite a few psychologists about various aspects of bibliotherapy or poem therapy, depending on the research that you're looking at will kind of dictate the verbiage. But uh, one of them I was talking to told me, you know, if you weren't a writer, then I would prescribe writing to you. But clearly you've been self-medicating your entire life because if you haven't been writing then, and this is what a psychologist told me, (laughs) you would go insane because trauma feeds psychosis. Mm. So I kind of dug deeper into that. And what I found was that using writing as a form of therapy, um, what it can do is shift your mind's understanding of trauma from the hippocampus, which is where it really commonly gets stuck into the prefrontal cortex. So When it's in the hippocampus, when it gets stuck there, that's why people feel triggered and why they respond when they are triggered like it's happening again right Mm. now. And when we can shift it, sometimes through writing or various other therapies, into the prefrontal cortex, then we obviously don't forget that it happens. But when we experience a trigger, our mind and body understands, okay, this is a memory. Mm -hmm. So that's apparently what I and probably quite a few other writers are doing. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually heard of that. And it's not the same if you 
type it out. You've got to handwrite everything. And for some reason, that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Is that do you find that to be true? Or do you type? I type. <laughs> um, I, I type because my thoughts, um, I can't write that quick, that right, quick by hand. Right, right. I have started a tiny little gratitude journal that I finish every daily meditation session with. Mm-hmm. And two months ago, I started doing just a daily journal of what happened that day. But that, you know, I, I kind of dreaded every day. Um, I'm at least going to finish the notebook. And the only reason I started that was partially because my handwriting has completely gone to hell. It used to be beautiful. (laughs) And partially because, you know, of the current situation. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen some people posting on social media, oh, you know, get your kids to keep a journal of during the pandemic. Well, yeah, that might be that might be interesting to have. So that's, that's why I've started that. And I honestly don't know if it's helping in any real big capacity. Yeah. So you also address topics such as body image and eating disorders through poetry. Talk about your poetry performance art. What is poetry performance art? I've only done two. There were more scheduled before lockdown happened. Mm. But kind of along the same vein as um, poetry and virtual reality, I started a poetry performance art series also when I was in Washington, D.C., And it was just another means of engaging audiences and encouraging people to consume poetry in various ways. Mm -hmm. It's called Embody Poetry. And I take a poem and I write it on a, I call them volunteer models. They're non-professional models and they are paid a pretty handsome honorarium, but that's what I call them. <laughs> I seek out uh, these volunteer models who inhabit bodies that are either underrepresented and or hypersexualized in the contemporary Western art gaze. Mm-hmm. I work with them to match them with a poem that I feel kind of complements them and who they are. And it's basically me finger painting um, on nude form a poem. So in D.C., actually, the model was my roommate at the time, and he was a black queer dancer. So I used gold paint on him, and it was during an open studio final showcase type of situation where audience could come and just watch. Uh, He had the autonomy to invite people up to paint a word on his body or not. And that can always shift and change with the model. And I never promote that because who knows how they're going to be feeling at the time. Right. I did a similar thing in March at my showcase for Open Signal in Portland. And uh, the model was a Mexican-American woman. Hers was kind of a test for what I ultimately was going to do at IAIA in Santa Fe which is the largest American Indian Institute for the Arts that there is in the U.S. Mm. And at IAIA, I had planned to work with an indigenous model who was also an award-winning slam poet, and she was going to perform the poem at the end. Oh, wow. Sadly, that has, of course, been canceled because that was slated for June. Mm-hmm. But there's something about art where when it's happening, it demands silence in a way nothing else does. And I think that's why, you know, people tend to whisper at museums and they're quiet in movie theaters. 
Mm. and seeing something happening like this. It's very difficult for me to gauge the experience as an audience member because I am just so in it and um, trying to keep the paint mixed and trying to figure out where I want different words on the body and at the same time trying to have a really like casual conversation with the model because they're not professionals and I'm sure it's very intimidating for them. I'm trying to keep them distracted. (laughs) Right. Oh, wow. um, I've been told that it, um, I mean, powerful is kind of an overused word, but all-consuming, and I had kind of glanced up at my last one, and the place was absolutely packed and pretty much silent. (laughs) That model, she ultimately did not want to invite people up, which is completely fine. Right. But um, it's, it's very different being part of that, whether you're participating actively or more passively, than it is, you know, going to a poetry reading. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ultimately, that's my goal is just to offer various avenues of experiencing and consuming poetry. Yeah. Wow. So how do you find these models? Well, you know, the one was my roommate. Uh, the most recent one, <laughs> I actually, I, I found her on Craigslist, but the odd thing was, so I'm in Portland right now, and that's where I did my first master's, and I've been here off and on for 20 years. I, you know, secured her beforehand, and then I was going to um, a conference I was speaking at for the book publishing program at Portland State University, my alma mater, Mm -hmm. and I I got there a little early, so I just kind of slipped into the session beforehand that was in the room I was going to be speaking in, and this woman that I sat behind kind of turned around and looked at me a little bit longer than was normal, (laughs) and then afterwards, she's like, are you Jessica? And I said, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, it's someone else that like, I don't remember. And I completely should. <laughs> like, I'm your model next month. So oh. she's in the master's program that I finished in 2007 oh. and just happened to be in that same room. So oh, wow. it all, I know it was, it was very strange. So she did have a genuine interest in poetry and publishing. And that's why she had, you know, seeing the Craigslist ad to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the third model that I was going to work with in Santa Fe, I had also done a residency there a few years ago. So I have some ties to the arts community and it was just a recommendation from a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I guess, you know, word will get out eventually and you'll be doing this full time pretty soon. <laughs> That, yeah, that would be fun. You know, what I was thinking when I was doing the last one, I'm like, oh, I need like knee pads because I'm getting too old to be like crawling around on concrete with bare knees. But um, it's different every time and it gets, you know, smoother with the process every time. Right, right. Now, are you currently pursuing your doctoral degree? I am, yeah, at Exeter in the UK. And um, PhD programs in the UK are different than in the US. Mm-hmm. So, you're either research track or teaching track, and you have to have your master's already when you start. So when you're research track, you do not take classes. All you're doing is researching and writing your dissertation. So that's why I'm bouncing all over in can. I'm not <laughs> tied to classwork. Oh, okay. And so now you're doing your doctoral research on the intersection of poetry and eating disorders, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. But can you tell us a little bit about your research? 
Yeah, I'll tr- I'll try to keep it brief. Obviously, I could say a lot because I'm writing an entire book on it. Yeah, uh, very little has been done. There 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 is some existing research, and partially why so little has been done is because eating disorders as we know them today have only existed since the end of the 19th century. Mm. Um, bulimia, the first time it was mentioned in terms of bulimia nervosa was, I believe, 1902 in a French journal. So they're all relatively new, even though, of course, we know eating disorders have always existed. Right, right. Um, along Christianity, Eve was considered the first disordered eater. And mm. there's all kinds of research about that. But... Uh, what I'm specifically looking at is where eating disorders meet and perhaps influence poetry, specifically in a 100-year span from the 1870s to 1970s. So I am considering five key female poets, and that includes Christina Rossetti, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Marion Moore, Anne Sexton, and Sylvia Plath. Mm-hmm. And what I'm looking at is how The medical texts and theories of their particular eras might be reflected in their work and life. Uh, There's some really interesting details of existing research, Uh, things that show like women who either have an eating disorder or likely had an eating disorder use an M dash at an astoundingly higher rate than women who didn't, um, don't or didn't have an eating disorder. Really? And some of the theories are that, it's, I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious when you think about it. The M-dash kind of scrapes away any excess fat. It can remove words. It gets right to the point. And then the visual image of an M-dash in general mimics the results of an eating disorder. You know, it's long and slender. Yeah. Um, so that's just one example. But yeah, there's what I consider very fascinating little details in that intersection. And my goal is that hopefully I will be able to create the first complete book on this very niche focus. Yeah, very niche. Yeah. Oh, that that is so interesting. Um, So how long is this process? How long will it take you to do all your research and, and then write your book? Is it do you have a, a timeline? Well, <laughs> it's all, you know, changing now because all of the archival libraries are closed. Oh, right. Who knows when they'll reopen. So I am basically exactly, well, if you look at it one way, I'm exactly at the halfway point because really a research track doctoral program there takes four years. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people say three because that fourth year is dedicated strictly to editing your dissertation. Mm. You might get that done in one month. You might want to take the whole year. But that fourth year, you're not even really paying tuition. It's just so minimal that it doesn't really count. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on what you think of. But I've, I've completed two years. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> That's an extensive program, four years. Wow. Yeah. Well, and when you're doing what I'm doing, which the plan was to spend a substantial amount of time at many archival libraries around the world, Mm -hmm. you know, you need it. So I've spent the most time at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia, which has pretty much the vast majority of Marion Moore archives. I did get very rarely granted photography permissions from the Lilly Library in Indiana for the Sylvia Plath archives, but 
when I was there, I was kind of looking at a different angle. Mm. So now I'm kind of in this position of working with libraries remotely and begging them to make copies for me. And this is something that was never allowed before, but now they're having to change everything as well. So wow, I got really, really lucky. You know, I, I had mentioned to you that I was going to be at the Harry Ransom Center at UT Austin this spring, which is no longer happening. But one of the librarians there went through and scanned almost 300 pages of Anne Sexton's poetry drafts which have never been digitized before and gave me permission to reprint them. So that's what I'm doing this week is going through page after page of scans. Wow. Yeah. Everyone's having to change all their processes and it's just a unprecedented time we're living in right now. I know. I feel like we've all gotten more sedentary over recent months. And writers are notoriously sedentary, and and it's so important to get up and move, you know, throughout the day, not only for our bodies, but also our creative processes. I know on the days I exercise or, you know, get up and move, I'm better physically, mentally, and just all over. So how do you practice self-care throughout your day? Um, My personal practice of self-care is kind of a balance because, um, yeah, this isn't really a surprise given anyone who's read my work or my doctoral research, I'm in management from an eating disorder. And part of my personal eating disorder was bulimia by way of excessive exercising. Mm. So um, it's not difficult for me to motivate myself to get up and work out. And I will admit that I've turned one of my spare bedrooms into a proper home gym during (laughs) quarantine. Um, But I've been in management for a while now, so I think it is pretty well balanced. I'm also a registered yoga teacher with my 500-hour certification and children's mm. yoga teacher and certified personal trainer and all this kind of stuff. So I'm very lucky in that regard that I have the knowledge and skill set to be able to practice pretty comprehensive self-care plan while we're in quarantine. And I live in a very beautiful area where running outdoors you know, in the springtime is obviously a pretty easy thing to do. Yeah. But um, I think that exercise, physical exercise is also a springboard for creative thought. Like if I start getting bogged down, it has always been when I'm on a long run or some other kind of activity where I can't readily write something down that I'm inspired as much as I don't like that word. <laughs> Right. So um, it's it's a welcome break, especially like I just can't think about this particular subject anymore. That is a way of clearing my head. So yeah, it all is working together. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Definitely. Now, speaking of inspiration, what are you working on now as it relates to your writing? Well, I have two books forthcoming in 2021. Uh, one of them is called Antipodes by New Rivers Press. And it is a collection of experimental poetry that, well, this is really difficult for me to try to say because basically these poems can be read forward or backward word by word. Mm. Whereas when we think of reverse poetry, it's generally forward or backward line by line. Mm -hmm. I've always asked people, is this, is what I'm doing, is this a thing? Does it have a name? Did somebody actually start it? Should I be giving credit to somebody? And I've said this at every reading for the past year, year and a half. 
twice someone has come up to me and said, yes, it's a thing. I've seen it, but I can't remember where. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really doing me any favors. So um, <laughs> if anyone listening to this knows, please let me know before, you know, this goes to print. Yeah, because um, it could be your thing, right? I'm sure it's not. Is the <laughs> thing. But I've, I've looked, you know, I haven't dedicated my life to looking, but right. As of right now, I am calling them antipodes, which okay. in geography uh, means polar opposite. Okay. So that is coming out next year. And I'm kind of curious how the editing process for that will go because New Rivers Press is, it was founded in the 50s, but it's a university press and graduate students are involved in the entire process. Mm. And this isn't really like any other kind of book where it's like, okay, you can give me feedback. What's not working here? Because if you want to change one word or one letter, then you've changed the, I, I need to change the entire thing. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how this will end up panning out, but we'll see. And uh, the other one is um, Selected Poems from 2000 to 2020, which was the Birdie Prize winner from Meadowlark Books. And it was curated and edited by a senior editor at Calix Journal, Brenna Crotty. And I'd always kind of like, that's, you know, 2000 to 2020. And then if I never publish a poetry book again, I feel like that's a nice little culmination. <laughs> but the, uh, the difficult thing for that for me was I am terrible at sequencing poems, my own poems as well. Mm. I'm probably, I think, terrible at choosing what are my 50 best poems? So I really wanted somebody else to do that work, basically. And that's what Brenna did. Mm. And I just trust her completely. Didn't spend a whole lot of time looking. I'm like, oh, like, does this, you know, is this really that great? Or, you know, something like that. And apparently someone else thought it was good, too, since it won that prize. Yeah. But um, that's also coming out in 2021. And then besides that, you know, I'm really trying to focus on my dissertation because I hope to find a publisher for that in two years when it's done. And then there's a part of me that's very mildly working on maybe a short story collection that's titled, We Used to Party Together. Oh, wow. That's basically just about, well, it's not about a sobriety journey because not many people want to read about that. It's about before that. Right. Um, many you know, drunken and drug-induced nights. So, <laughs> the we'll party see stuff. If that ever comes to light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So you've got a lot going on. Yeah. So I was wondering if you would read one of your poems from your savagery collection for us. Sure. I will read braiding for you, and if anyone has the book, it's on page thirty. Okay. Braiding. The morning of my mother's death, I couldn't plait my hair. The weaving, a daily habit I'd thought branded on my brain had left me quick as her. Memory encodings are fragile, ripe for damage. Even consolidation isn't a given. We imagine the slopes and secrets of our favorite lover. If we had to, we could even eat in the dark. I cried silent in the bathroom, thin strands laced crooked through shaking fingers at the impossibility of it all. It had been decades since I'd sat cross-legged on the shag carpet, buried between her knees, 
quietly while she wound cornrows like crop circles all around my scalp. The smell of pert shampoo, the snap of rubber bands. Everything came pushing back except the fast fingers. Still, it makes sense. The heart is a muscle. Its memories are vulnerable to paralysis like every other rundown part. Remember, clean the kitchen, mop the floor of drying curls. Only in stillness can the dead pass through. That's beautiful. I should say that the title and maybe some elements of it were inspired by my favorite poet, Lee Young Lee, and the title of his was also Braiding. Mm. His work, and especially that poem, are one of some of the few lines that stick with me and are just so heartbreaking in their simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, the line from the poem that I'm thinking of his is he's talking about remembering when he was in college with the person who's now his wife and how you know they would spend hours on the train together. And one of the lines that I love is, how I wish we didn't hate those years while we lived them. Mm. But the other one, he's talking about braiding her hair every night. And he says, one day one of us will have to remember this. Yeah. It's so intimate. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of that as mirroring my memories with my mother until after she was gone. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to braid my hair to go down and identify the body basically. Oh, wow. Wow. That's strong. Well, Jessica, do you have anything else you want to add? I don't, but if anyone is, you know, interested in what's going on in terms of exhibitions or, you know, if and when tour dates ever start up again, um, you can find everything on my website, which is just jessicameta.com. You can also email me directly through the contact form there or... You know, one day if the performance poetry art can ever start up again, if anyone wants to volunteer, then you can find me there as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get back to normal one of these days. Um, no. Well, Jessica, it's been just really lovely talking to you today. Thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself and your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great. Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with Jessica Meta, author of Savagery. You can learn more about Jessica and her work by visiting her websites through the link posted in the show notes. And while you're here, be sure to check out a few of the other interviews on Inside Scoop Live.